Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. You've probably noticed that I've started to release new episodes a little later in the week. I started doing that so I could work on another project without interfering with this podcast. Now, this other project I think will be of benefit to you as well, but I'll talk with you more about that at the end of this episode, so be sure to stay on and hear about that. Last time, we talked about muscles, but muscles are kind of a big deal, so I wanted to talk a little more about muscles and why they're crucial, not as a replacement for chiropractic, but to optimize the benefits of chiropractic. Too often, the rub-a-dub-dub chiropractors put a bad taste in our mouths when it comes to muscles. But we, when we put the proper function of muscles back in perspective, there's nothing more chiropractic than proper muscle function. Many years ago now, I was in a phase of doing regular weightlifting for muscle mass, and I noticed that it also caused changes in skin, as well as organ function, and even thoughts. That got me thinking about that muscles must do more than just look good. It was then that I first began to learn about myokines, and how vital they are to our health. At that time, I knew that exercise could influence your hormones, but I wasn't really sure how that happened. Once I learned about myokines, I was surprised but then not surprised to see that muscles produce a hormone that has incredible effects on the whole body. So let's dive into myokines a bit and see just how powerful they are and why they might be the biggest secret to chiropractic success. The first role of myokines is to maintain homeostasis. Well, that's a pretty important thing. According to a review by Sandra M. Barbalo et al., myokines play a role in regulating energy and metabolic processes. Some relevant myokines are interleukin-6, IL-6, IL-8, IL-15, irisin, myostatin, fibroblast growth factor 21, leukemia inhibitory factor, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and insulin-like growth factor 1. According to Marta Gomoraska et al., quote, bone and skeletal muscle are integrated organs and their coupling has been considered mainly a mechanical one in which bone serves as an attachment site to muscle, while muscle applies load to bone and regulates bone metabolism. However, skeletal muscle can affect bone homeostasis also in a non-mechanical fashion, i.e. through its endocrine activity. Being recognized as an endocrine organ itself, skeletal muscle secretes a panel of cytokines and proteins named myokines, synthesized and secreted by myocytes in response to muscle contraction. Myokines exert an autocrine function in regulating muscle metabolism as well as paracrine endocrine regulatory function on distant organs and tissues such as bone, adipose tissue, brain, and liver. Physical activity is the primary physiological stimulus for bone anabolism and or catabolism. Through the production and secretion of myokines, such as IL-6, irisin, IGF-1, and, and FGF-2, beside the direct effect of loading, importantly, exercise-induced myokine can exert an anti-inflammatory action that's able to counteract not only acute inflammation due to an infection, but also a condition of chronic low-grade inflammation raised as consequence of physical inactivity, aging, or metabolic disorders i.e. obesity or type 2 diabetes mellitus, end quote. And here's one more. According to Lucia Skiskiola et al., 
Quote, a sedentary lifestyle defined as activities that do not increase energy expenditure impacts muscle mass and metabolism. Indeed, only seven days of decubitus resulted in a loss of muscle mass and a prolonged period, 90 to 120 days, reduced 30% of the muscle volume. Studies conducted on old immobilized animals have examined the effects of bed rest on skeletal muscle metabolism, demonstrating a disruption in the balance between protein synthesis and degradation in favor of catabolism. Interestingly, aging alters both the homeostasis of skeletal muscle, comprising the equilibrium between cell regeneration and differentiation, and the rate of protein synthesis and degradation. It is associated with reducing skeletal muscle stem cells in type 2 fiber, Major pathways associated with changes in satellite cells during aging, including NOTCH and WNT signaling. The first one is associated with proliferation, while the second with differentiation of muscle cells. Studies demonstrated that the expression of NOTCH signaling decreased with age during aging. End quote. So what I got from all this is that muscle mass is synonymous with health. How often do you look at your patient base and see people with hormone problems, obesity, immune dysfunction, or premature aging. All of these things have a link to muscle mass. Not that muscle mass alone is a magic cure-all, but when you lose muscle mass, you also decrease the number of myokines that could be working to reverse these aging processes and chronic diseases associated with aging. So here's the point of this entire line of reasoning. We're all used to hearing the stories of Dr. Gonstead and the miracles he performed. This often leads us into the temptation of thinking that we can fix anything with an adjustment. But we live in an age when we cannot adjust people out of poisoning and inactivity. Now those are some strong statements, so let me explain, starting with poisoning. It is a fact of reality that people smoke, or in this generation they vape. They drink excessively, they eat too much sugar, which is functionally a drug, and then they come to us looking for us to fix it in one adjustment. According to the CDC, in 2020, they found that in the United States, 13 out of every 100 adults over the age of 18 smoke. That becomes 30.8 million adults who smoke on a regular basis. My question is, is, can you adjust them well enough, often enough, or deep enough to overcome the consequences of that? Not likely, you would probably say. Have you ever talked to them about it? Well, if you have you would know that you would have an easier time getting someone to change religions than you would convincing them to drop a bad habit. I guess that's just the nature of physical and psychological addiction. Our bodies need water, and in fact, we die much sooner without water than we do without food. Yet if you are thirsty, and your body craves water, and develops thirst, and you ignore your thirst, you can decrease and even eliminate your thirst, even though your need for water is no less critical or essential. Many people suffer from dehydration, and the headaches that come with it, all because they've lost sensitivity to their body's siren call for more water. I've known numerous teenagers who drink a two-liter bottle of soda every day, and they drink no water. I've had people say to me, I can't drink anything that doesn't have color. Can you even comprehend how unnatural and unhealthy that is? Unfortunately, they could not. The problem is that when we become sedentary, we quickly lose the impulse to move and remain active. Without this urge to tell us that we need to move, it's easy to reach the point where we stop doing what needs to be done. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I understand how this happens for people, but it doesn't change the fact that it's still a problem that needs to be overcome. Sadly, 
The solution is not so easy as simply talking about it. In fact, building muscle is hard, and it only gets harder as you get older. When it comes to muscle, there are so many ideas, and they are happening at the same time, and sometimes even contradictory. This is one of many reasons why beginners have so much trouble building muscle. Exercise doesn't immediately create muscle mass, but there's a certain amount of non-intuitive knowledge that's required. This is actually a difficult thing to verbalize, but I often think about it while I'm exercising myself because I know that I was taught these things and I wouldn't know them either if I hadn't been taught. So let me try to convey some of what I know makes it difficult to exercise properly. The first is the level of activity required. Most people stop as soon as it's uncomfortable, but that's way too early. The point at which you're exercising hard enough to no longer carry on a conversation, that's the point where you're starting to do work. I get asked about walking all the time. I always ask, are you walking at a pace where you can still carry on a conversation? If the answer is yes, then you're not doing enough work to push your functional power. There's a concept called functional threshold power, or FTP for short. FTP is regularly used in cycling and is defined as the amount of power you can produce in an hour under constant effort measured in watts. Well, let's be honest. How many of your patients can even exercise for a full hour, much less push themselves to their maximum for an hour? Another bitter truth is that when you start training for FTP, you'll stink at it. Oh, and you'll also feel like you're going to die. I know from doing this kind of training that this is the absolute best way to increase your fitness, but even after doing it for a while, and if you're doing it right, it will still make you feel like you're going to die. To better explain that aspect, I need to move on to the next part of this. So the next part is to recognize that zone of output where you're just a little bit breathless. We call this zone three. Zone two is where you're exercising and you can still carry on a conversation, even if you can just barely do it. Zone three is where that conversation stops. Most people who walk for exercise do it in zone two. If you want to truly benefit from walking, you need to reach zone three and that point of being breathless so you cannot speak. Now, to give you an idea of where this should go, when I do this kind of training, I use zone three for recovery, not active work. In other words, I will sustain zone four, five, and six for a number of minutes and then recover in zone three. It takes training to reach the point where you are fit enough to use zone three for your recovery and not for doing work. But that's the reason why I say that exercise is hard and most people don't know how to push themselves hard enough to get the benefit that they're really looking for. But there's another beneficial aspect to this type of training and it shows up in the form of endurance training. A study by Jenna B. Gillen et al investigated a comparison between sprint interval training of one minute over a 10 minute period versus moderate intensity continuous training over a 50 minute period. Peak oxygen uptake increased after training by 19% in both groups. Insulin sensitivity index or CSI determined by intravenous glucose tolerance tests performed before and 72 hours after training increased similarly after SIT and MICT. Skeletal muscle mitochondrial content also increased similarly after SIT and MICT, as primarily reflected by the maximal activity of citrate synthase. In the end, the researchers concluded that, quote, 12 weeks of brief intensive interval exercise improved indices of cardiometabolic health to the same extent as traditional endurance training in sedentary men, despite a five-fold lower exercise volume and time commitment. End quote. This research demonstrates that intense interval training for a short interval of time has the same health benefits as a medium intensity exercise 
for a longer period of time. Personally, I do both kinds of exercise in a normal week. The bulk of my exercise is high-intensity interval training for 20 to 30 minutes. At least twice a week, I will substitute in a medium-intensity workout for 60, 75, or 90 minutes. On a daily basis, regardless of the type of workout I'm doing, I focus on both aerobic and anaerobic activity to create both muscle and cardiovascular exhaustion by the end of the workout. As a side note, I now do one other thing that I never thought I would have ever have to do in my life. I've now reached an age where my greatest gains come after the strategic use of a rest day. When I was younger, there was no such thing as a rest day. Now I find that I can make tremendous progress if I listen to my body and I take a rest day as I need to. I try to work out every day, but I'll usually take a rest day somewhere between day 5 and 10. I've also found that if I do more endurance workouts than HIIT workouts, then I have to rest more often. The reason why I'm going to this much detail on this is so that you can develop a clear image that most people have to be pushed to exercise in their zone 3, but zone 3 is where a fit person does their recovery. That's an enormous gap, and it's a gap that exists for most of our patients. Now, I admit, you have to develop a sense of knowing what your body needs and knowing how much to push on any given day. This is something that most people don't have either. So based on their personality instead, they'll either push way too hard or way too soft. Rarely will someone who lacks experience accidentally nail this one, and the direction and extent of their error will determine how long they go before they give up. So I'm not trying to say that all your patients are out of shape, although they might be. But I am saying that every one of them would benefit from building and maintaining more muscle mass. It's the muscle mass that's the thing, and it goes way beyond just our physical appearance, although it does help that too. The role of myokines in physiology has introduced a new concept called muscle-organ crosstalk. It's now being recognized that skeletal muscle functions like an endocrine organ. The production of myokines occurs most productively during the act of exercise. This is why performing an exercise at a high output for a sustained amount of time produces the most myokines. The problem, for most humans, is that they can either do a high level of exercise for a short duration or a low level of exercise for a longer duration. How do we reach the point where we can do a high level for a longer period of time? Well, training, of course. This morning I did training where I was in zone 4 for 8 minutes, and I did it twice. I was wiped out, because that's what that kind of training does. It's exhausting, but you'll see rapid improvement. That's why this is such an effective means of, of fitness training. It's both aerobic and anaerobic, and I often try to push both of those so I fluctuate between hyperaerobic and hyperanaerobic, avoiding all the area in between. Let's talk about walking as exercise to drive this point home. I admit that I've been critical of walking as an exercise in the past. I've often met with pushback and outright rejection over it. Not because they have a valid argument necessarily, but because they have an emotional connection to the experience of walking. And their argument usually concludes with, at least I'm doing something. So here's the thing. As we talked about earlier, if you're walking for exercise and you aren't slightly breathless, meaning you can still talk to the person you're walking with, then you're exercising below the threshold necessary to create fitness. But even if you do walk at a pace fast enough to make, your breath, to make you breathless and improve your cardiovascular fitness, there's still another problem. Walking is unlikely to build muscle mass. And muscle mass, as we now know, is key to getting the benefits of myokines. Walking might help you lose weight by virtue of burning calories, but without the benefit of building muscle, you tend toward becoming skinny fat 
instead of becoming truly fit. To gain the benefit of myokines, you must be exercising in a way that creates muscle contractions leading to muscle hypertrophy or growth. A recent paper from the Edith Cowan University in Australia found that myokines have tumor suppression activity. To the extent that they suggest that cancer patients should not limit themselves to bed rest, but they should actively engage in exercise. For their study, they took pre-exercise blood and post-exercise blood. They applied both directly to tumor cells. They did this over a 12-week program of exercise and found that it took 3 months, or 12 weeks, of consistent exercise to maximize the anti-cancer effects of tumor suppression myokines. From the study, quote, Myokines in and of themselves don't signal the cells to die, Mr. Kim said, but they do signal our immune cells, T-cells, to attack and kill the cancer cells, end quote. A study from Matthew P. Harris et al. and published this year found that, quote, there's an emerging understanding that muscles produce and secrete myokines, which mediate local and systemic crosstalk to promote exercise tolerance and overall health, including cardiac conditioning. The myokine musculin, highly conserved across animal species, has been shown to be upregulated in response to physical activity. However, musculin effects in exercise-induced cardiac conditioning are not established. Following completion of a treadmill exercise protocol, wild-type mice and mice with disruption of the musculin encoding gene, OSTN, had their hearts extracted and exposed to an ex vivo ischemia reperfusion protocol or biochemical studies. Disruption of musculin signaling abolished the ability of exercise to mitigate cardiac ischemic injury. This impaired cardioprotection was associated with reduced mitochondrial content and function linked to blunted cyclic guanosine monophosphate signaling. Genetic deletion of musclin reduced the nuclear abundance of protein kinase G and cyclic adenosine monophosphate, that's uh, CAMP, cyclic AMP, response element binding, CREB, resulting in suppression of the master regulator of mitochondrial biogenesis, peroxisome proliferator activated receptor coactivator and its downstream targets in response to physical activity. Synthetic musculin peptide pharmacokinetic parameters were defined and used to calculate the infusion rate necessary to maintain its plasma level comparable to that observed after exercise. This infusion was found to reproduce the cardioprotective effects of exercise in sedentary WT and OSTNKO mice. Musculin is essential for exercise-induced Cardio prote- cardiac protection. Boosting musculin signaling might serve as a novel therapeutic strategy for cardio protection. End quote. The point being that many of the positive effects that we associate with exercise are created by myokines, and we now know that myokines are increased with consistent exercise, not sporadic exercise. In fact, it's been discovered that while consistent exercise helps to reduce our oxidative stress, Weekend warrior type activity, defined as high intensity exercise or activity that's engaged in on an infrequent basis, is actually responsible for increasing oxidative stress. In other words, weekend warrior behavior will lead to premature aging. So to wrap this up with a nice little bow, when we have patients 
who recognize the need to exercise, it's important that they focus on muscle building more than weight loss. If you focus on muscle building, you'll get the muscle mass and its benefits, and you'll get weight loss as a product of myokine activity. But if your goal is weight loss without muscle building, you'll get neither. Muscle building with consistent exercise is also our best defense against age-related cardiovascular disease and cancer. While we haven't dis discussed it at all yet, muscle building also helps to create muscular balance, which greatly aids us in our job and sustaining the benefits of chiropractic correction. Well, I hope you found this to be helpful and that you can use this information to help your patients know what their exercise goals should be. As promised, let me wrap this up by telling you a little bit about this project I've been working on. For three years now, I've been cognizant of the fact that I have doctors, students, and laypeople, and patients who listen to this podcast. I've tried to juggle my explanation of the concepts, so I'm not insulting the doctors by talking beneath them or insult the patients by talking over their heads. At the same time, it occurred to me that we, as doctors, spend a lot of time having the same conversations over and over with our patients. Oftentimes, we wish we had time to elaborate and go into greater detail, but we just don't have that kind of time. So I decided that I'm going to be starting a new podcast that's intended for patients, specifically your patients, but I'm doing it with a twist. I wanted to do it in a way that should you choose, you can refer your patients to the podcast and know that they're being educated in a way that supports you and the way you practice. Or you could refer them to a particular episode on a particular subject to increase the depth of their understanding without having to do it yourself. My intention is to have each episode build on the one before it, so putting it together has been more time-consuming than I first expected. I'm hoping to begin recording in the next week or two, and I'll be sure to let you know when I release the first episode. I don't really know what to expect of this podcast, but I hope it's something that you can use and find valuable to grow your patient base by keeping them well-informed, while also saving you time so you can do more of what you love to do. Well, that wraps it up for this week. So as always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time. Thank <laughs> you.